This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, how the design of health clinics can change the nature and effectiveness of care in the community. Just when you thought it was safe to go out, a relatively newly discovered form of brain degeneration which affects at least one in four older people with dementia and could explain why Alzheimer's disease researchers have been barking up the wrong tree. And good news for couples who've had a stillborn baby. Having a stillbirth, a baby who's died in the womb after 28 weeks of pregnancy, is a terrible experience for parents and thankfully reasonably rare in Australia with an incidence of around 7 per 1,000 births. The question many such couples have, though, is how long should they wait before trying again? The trouble is there aren't reliable recommendations. For live births, the experts say the ideal spacing is two years. For women who've had a miscarriage or a termination, they recommend six months. But it's unknown for stillbirths. That's why a Western Australian group has looked at 14, over 14,000 women who'd had a stillbirth to see what happened in their next pregnancy. Gavin Pereira is an epidemiologist at Curtin University in Perth. Welcome to The Health Report. Thank you. So, Gavin, just let's go back to those statistics about live mm-hmm. birth, miscarriage and terminations. Mm-hmm. What, what are, I mean, what's the evidence around those recommendations? Because obstetrics has a long history of making confident recommendations mm. on not very much evidence. Um, those recommendations come from the WHO guidelines, but um, obstetric colleges tend to follow those guidelines and then do a review and then follow up with their own. Um, so, so let's talk about live birth okay, recommendations there. So you've had a live baby. How long do you wait before the next one? So if you had a live baby, the current recommendation is to wait um, at least about two years after that live birth before um, conceiving again. Why? Well, the so we don't really know um, uh-huh. what, what the what, <laughs> what the mechanism is, but there is a hypothesis, and that dominant hypothesis is the maternal depletion hypothesis, and that is that short interpregnancy intervals leave insufficient recovery time. Um, so iron and folate levels, for example, will drop and then the mother needs some time to recover. And what happens to the baby? Because mm-hmm. I think the, the, the evidence is really more around six months than two years, isn't it? So, the, so what happens to the baby? So, the, um, so these, these recommendations are heavily based on uh, preterm birth and um, small, so that's short pregnancies and small for gestational age, which is um, so small babies as the outcome. And um, short intervals, yes, we're speaking about six months, less than six months generally, uh, but also short intervals have been defined as less than 12 months. So what's the evidence around waiting six months to conceive after miscarriages or terminations? Um, it's similar. So, so um, after, after miscarriage or um, induced um, abortions, the, um, the effects on the next pregnancy for preterm birth and small for gestational age increases. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I thought there was some protection. I thought there were, that was a, mis, a misunderstanding. That's for, so, so there's, okay, so there's, that's, that's, the, um, so that's the WHO guidelines. However, there is some indication, which is what you're referring to, that um, less than six months um, does confer some protective effects. Some studies have shown that. And um, so this is why we this is why we conducted our study on on, um, on interpregnancy inter- intervals after stillbirth. So tell us about the study, mm-hmm. what, what you did. Yeah, so we took uh, perinatal registrations from three countries: um, Norway, Finland, and we couldn't get all of Australia, but we got Western Australia. So just to find perinatal—that's pre-pregnancy, mm-hmm. that's pre-delivery oh, okay. and post-delivery up to what a month. 
Um, yes, that's right. But but the registrations um, are taken at the time of delivery. So, for example, in Western Australia, we use the midwives notifications registry. And those, uh, so midwives at the time of delivery, take down some information about the, about the birth. And you partnered with Finland and Norway hmm. to bulk up the numbers. Yes, yeah, so in Finland and Norway and many, many Nordic countries, um, they have a deterministic linkage system, which means that they, we can follow pregnancies um, and link pregnancies to the same women. Uh, which is what you need to do when you're looking at interpregnancy intervals and exposure. So when you looked at these 14,500 women, what proportion had a baby with a short interval, you know, the next conceived after a short period of time after the stillbirth? Yeah. So, okay, so we've defined short intervals as less than six months or less than 12 months. So about a third of them, it's actually 37%, had a interpregnancy interval within six months. And about 63% had an interpregnancy interval less than 12 months. So they weren't messing around. They got straight back no, in. No, that, that's, that's right. Yeah, and if we compare that to um, live birth, um, after, after live birth, uh, women tend to wait roughly two years. That's 25 months. Uh, that's the median interpregnancy interval. And compare that to the median interval uh, after stillbirth, and that's about nine months. So what outcomes were you looking for in the babies? Mm -hmm. So we specifically looked at stillbirth, so that's another stillbirth after the first stillbirth, uh, preterm birth after the stillbirth, and small for gestational age after the stillbirth. And what did you find? Well, we've, we found that, um, so firstly, there was insufficient evidence um, that these short pregnancy intervals um, were harmful. And uh, we also found that for um, fetal growth restriction restriction, which we're calling small for gestational age here, there was some indication of a protective effect. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, that's right. So that was a surprising result. And of course, we can't confirm that. And you know, we, um, so those, these results haven't been confirmed by other studies yet. Um, but it does at least show that either way, you know, the current evidence does not point to uh, harms from short interpregnancy intervals after stillbirth on those other um, outcomes. And what, if that protective effect is real, have you got any idea why it might be occurring? Um, so there's another hypothesis which I haven't mentioned yet, and that's the physiologic adaptation hypothesis. And that asserts that pregnancy primes the body for the next pregnancy. So you lose that adaptation over time. Um, so it's possible that we that loss that in... That your body is primed ready for the next one. That's right. And that the physiologic adaptation... Um, can be lost faster after a stillbirth than a live birth. Another possibility could be that um, so short interpregnancy intervals represent just more fertile couples who have favourable birth outcomes anyway. So pregnancy in intention uh, wasn't captured. And mm. is a history of infertility got anything to did you factor that into the story? So we didn't really have information on that. So that's what I was touching on at the end there. That the um, yeah, we didn't. So from these from this registry-based studies, uh, we don't have any, much information on you know, fertility, fertility treatments. Uh, but it is certainly possible that short interpregnancy intervals uh, were, were more common for those who were more, were more fertile, and those more fertile couples do tend to have favourable birth outcomes anyway. So does this translate into a solid piece of advice here in Radio National? Um, so the, I mean, the the focus of um, our conclusion is not that um, the short pregnancy intervals are protective. Uh, what, we're, what we want to convey is that the current evidence does not point to harm from short intervals after stillbirth. 
but uh, have a chat with your mm-hmm. obstetrician anyway. That's definitely right. So the, I mean, if there's one one line uh, that, that I have to um, conclude with, and that's the. In the this is your medical any... legal line. This is the medical legal <laughs> line coming up here, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, terms and conditions apply. And, oh, yeah. sure. Don't blame yeah, us don't... here at Radio National. Talk to your doctor. That's right. Or don't, don't blame Gavin Pereira specifically. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, follow the advice from your obstetrician based on your individual situation. But in the absence of any concern, I think at the moment there's insufficient evidence to suggest that short intervals after stillbirth are harmful. Gavin, thank you. Thank you very much. So right to Gavin Pereira, not to me. Gavin Pereira is Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Curtin University in Perth. And you're with RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. At least one in four older people with dementia have a form of neurodegeneration that's only been discovered relatively recently. It's called LATE, standing for, wait for it, Limbic Predominant Age-Related TDP43 Encephalopathy. And a group of international researchers has called for more consistent testing and research to find out more about it. The existence of late in such high numbers could help to explain why drugs for Alzheimer's disease have been so spectacularly unsuccessful. They're off target. Peter Nelson was first author on the paper. He's professor of pathology at the University of Kentucky. Late is a subtype of a disease that can lead to a dementia syndrome. There are a number of different diseases that underlie this clinical syndrome. And late is very common subtype of the diseases that can contribute to the dementia syndrome. What does someone with late show? Tends to show uh, impairment of short-term memory that can get worse and worse and then culminate in the dementia syndrome. So why is it important to know that there's more than one disease? Well, for one thing, we're not going to be able to cure them until we be able to tease apart these pathways. For another thing, for a given person who has an impairment, the different diseases have different natural histories. So late, when it's by itself, has a trajectory of memory loss that is not as bad as Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is more devastating and it's more swift. However, The kicker is that frequently both late and Alzheimer's disease are present in the same person, and in those circumstances, the impairment is even more swift than with Alzheimer's. So the combination seems to be worse than either by themselves. Late tends to affect people aged over 80. Does it affect young people as well? Finding out about the younger people would require a lot of research, but uh, it definitely seems to be most vulnerable among people that are the latest portion of the human aging spectrum. And what's going on in the brain? The brain is getting stuffed up with protein junk. But but it's Uh, not the same protein junk as in Alzheimer's disease. Correct. There are different types of proteins that are leading to it and different genetic changes that contribute to the syndrome as well. Is there anything unusual about this junk? Because the research focused on the junk in Alzheimer's disease has been spectacularly unsuccessful, so-called amyloid and tau. Anything special about your junk? No, it's just a different subtype of junk, and it has the usual caveats that we haven't been able to clear out the Alzheimer's junk, and we may not be able to clear out the TDP43, which is the name of this protein junk. But one of the big reasons that we've been successful is that we need, for the clinical trial sake, to be able to try to dissect out during life who has which junk and to develop therapies that are oriented towards that specific type of protein junk. So if you took 100 people aged 80 with dementia... What proportion do you guess have late? Well, we've done community-based 
studies which are about 25% of people over age 80 that would have late associated with cognitive impairment. That's, and that's huge. Like, it's very huge, it's, but it's not as, quite as big as Alzheimer's disease, but it's right up there in terms of the scale. What's the heredity of late, if any? There are several genes that have been linked to late that are distinct from Alzheimer's. If you take Alzheimer's, the genetics are, if you get the early onset, it's autosomal dominant, meaning it's a one in two chance you pass it on to your children. If you get any sense of the family transmission of late? Yeah, it's sort of a similar thing that you're two, three times more likely to be affected if you have a parent or other first degree relative that's affected. A couple of genes are known which predispose you to Alzheimer's disease. There's one called APOE4, which is related to cardiovascular risk. And cardiovascular risk itself is a risk factor for Alzheimer's as well as vascular dementia. What are the risk factors for late? That is still a controversial area where we're sort of in early days. But there's some interesting implications that maybe autoinflammation and thyroid disease may be related to risk for late and it could be that Alzheimer's actually is by itself. It can stimulate some people to go over into a, a misfolding protein condition that also promotes late. As you talk about protein misfolding, it does raise the issue of infection as a cause of dementia, which many people have spoken about, prions and maybe even viruses and unusual reactions to them. Is there any sense that infection could be a cause of late? No implication of that yet, and that's a very controversial area with Alzheimer's as well. There's so many things we don't know. I think it's very analogous to the 1990s and before with cancer where we were just blasting everybody with poisons and hoping that the poisons would kill the cancer before it killed the person. But around the 1990s, we started to really grapple with the complexity of what cancer is, and we realized that there are multiple different cancers. Even lung cancers, there's dozens of different types of cancers. They have different pathways. They have different biochemical signatures. That if you can make diagnoses during life about those signatures and then develop therapies for those signatures, you can do what we've now done 20, 30 years later, which is to enable us to start bending the survival curve of people that are victims of cancer. Understanding late is part of the grappling with the complexity of dementia that's going to enable us to have ultimate success. How many more lates do you think are waiting there to be discovered? Great question. That's knowing about the unknown. The aged brain is the most complicated thing on the planet. The initial assumptions that people were making is only one disease was almost childlike and silly. It just turns out that it's just going to be more complex. And so in order to get any success, we're really going to have to grapple with that complexity. And this is just a stepping stone of that process. Peter Nelson, uh, it's been great to talk to you on the health report. Hey, thanks a lot for calling. I appreciate it. And my best to everybody down there from your neighbors up here to the northeast. Peter Nelson is Professor of Pathology at the University of Kentucky. The real test of a publicly funded healthcare system isn't measured by how well it serves the people of Turak, Vaucluse, Ascot, Sandy Bay or Claremont. By and large, the better off and better educated will make sure they pool the best healthcare for themselves. Now, the test of public health care is about how well it serves disadvantaged populations, disadvantaged because of language, postcode or intergenerational deprivation. Those populations are the sickest in Australia and die the youngest, and along the way use infrastructure like emergency departments when they'd get better care from well-organised general practice. But it isn't easy because people's lives are complex and the things that make them sick and die sooner are far more than cigarettes, cholesterol and blood pressure. So is it possible to design 
community-based care so that it takes that complexity into account? And can the way you design the buildings that house GPs, health workers and other professionals make a difference? In a moment, we'll go to southwest Western Australia to an innovative proposal from a community-controlled Aboriginal health service. But before that, let's go to Melbourne and a large network of community health centres called CoHealth, which looks after the most diverse and disadvantaged populations in Victoria. Lynn Morgan is the Chief Executive of CoHealth. Welcome to the Health Report, Lynn. Oh, hi, Norman. Great to be here. So just describe, I mean, I've kind of outlined the problem. I mean, is that the problem mm. you're trying to solve here? That absolutely is. In fact, your pitch was fabulous. Thank you. Uh, yes. So obviously, as a community health organisation, uh, over a long period of time, we've um, spent a lot of time thinking about what the barriers to care are. And in many cases, these are things that are, are in a sense, eminently fixable. So given that we are uh, considering redeveloping our health centre, we thought perhaps we should That's do in Collingwood. that. That's right. That's right. So we've got a long-standing centre there that's been there for more than forty years, and it's getting a little aged, and so it's it's ripe for redevelopment. That's a necessity. But really, what we thought about was, well, what are some of the things that drive, as you say, uh, limitations in accessing care? Now, one of those things, of course, is housing. Um, it's widely recognised that inadequate housing drives poorer health outcomes. So, the co-health board, of course, were very interested in using the asset that is that land. So just before, you, just before you go on, and I think that your analysis also showed that poor housing is associated with, I hesitate to call it overuse, but use of emergency departments rather oh, absolutely. than... absolutely. So to what extent? Well, you know, I think what we notice, and we we are strong supporters of the sort of housing first policy that says, you know, one of the things we need to do with homeless people is get them houses. But being involved in that space for many decades now, we've come to understand that there is more that drives inappropriate utilisation of uh, emergency departments. And often that's about proximity and connection with health services and social connection generally. So most of us who have good social connection, that is don't have a history of homelessness, will draw very heavily on our social networks when we're unwell. So, you know, you think you ask your partner to drop past the pharmacy, you know, somebody might drive you to the doctor, so on and so forth. Uh, disadvantaged populations tend not to have that uh, level of social connection. So what we're trying to do is design a model of care that takes account of that. So what's exciting about this design is the notion that we could potentially shortcut some of those barriers for people. So what are you proposing? So the suggestion at this stage is that we redevelop the site with uh, housing that would focus on some particularly high-need populations, so uh, elderly, low-income people or folks who have other forms of disadvantage, perhaps a history of homelessness or that may, may be, you know, an experience of family violence, but that we co-locate a high-quality, um, significant community health centre within that development. Now, we need to build the community health centre anyway. The innovative piece is what is possible when people are housed in such close proximity. And I think that's the piece we're most excited about. How would you... So is this a sophisticated 
structured finance way of doing a property development? I mean, what, what, what are you talking about here? Are you going to become a, <laughs> yeah. this megalomaniacal property developer and <laughs> no, you know, just outside no. the Melbourne CBD yeah, or what? Yeah, yeah, no. Look, um, as an organisation, we have little to no interest in becoming a property developer. So how many houses, when we, you know, you've got a reasonable sized site, but how many houses do you practice? Well, home? potentially there could be as many as, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, 80 to 100 dwellings. So we're talking uh, quite a significant redevelopment potential I mean, that we can dial that up and down depending on uh, the government contribution. And is this going to be get. temporary accommodation or permanent? No, no, no. This will be permanent housing. Now, this is that going to make, I mean, it's a nice homes. idea, but is it going to make mm. a big dent in the social problems of Collingwood? Not necessarily, but in, but in the local area, these are populations that will require public housing um, irrespective. And so uh, government will have responsibility for finding appropriate housing for them. What we're trying to do is to ensure that the health services that we know they're going to need over the course of their lives are positioned in such a way as to maximise their utilisation. So what we're really interested in is can we develop models of care downstairs that maximise the possibility that people upstairs will get timely, affordable and appropriate care. And and as you know, that's that's no mean feat. You know, sorry, these are people... Sorry, go sorry, on. go on. I'm, I'm just sorry to interrupt, but I, I, the question I'm going to ask is that it's not just medical care that people need. No. And if you look at some of the models in Aboriginal communities, mm. particularly there's one excellent one in Brisbane, the northern suburbs of Brisbane, where mm. you've got a medical centre with Aboriginal health workers and you get high quality health care. In the middle, there's a gym that would put mm. your fitness first to shame. And then mm. there's a social care clinic there for families at risk. I mean, isn't that what you need rather than something that's totally focused on medical care? No, no, that, you're absolutely right. And I would be the first to say that the Aboriginal community controlled organisations have really nailed this. They, The models that are being utilised and have been historically are absolutely the way primary care needs to be and is heading. Um, equally, we would uh, it's highly unlikely that we would develop a facility these days without a gym. And just briefly, um, where's the money going to come from? Well, this is it. <laughs> Some of it will come from CoHealth's own assets in terms of the land, but we are clearly looking for a fairly significant government contribution. This can't happen. Um, this can't happen without that. Okay, but then, well. having said that, we are very clear that we will save the public purse significant money down the track because these are populations that are very high users of um, high-end services, often well past when ideally they were initially engaged. Well, we'll watch with interest. Lynn again, Chief Executive of CoHealth, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So that's what CoHealth has been doing, trying to redesign its health centres for a disadvantaged population with a focus on housing. But there's another interesting experiment on the table in southwest Western Australia in Bunbury with the Southwest Aboriginal Medical Service, which is a community-controlled health service serving the southwest of Western Australia. The Chief Executive Officer is Leslie Nelson, and she's on the line from Bunbury. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you very much, Norman. And also with me in our studio here is Christopher Lawrence, who's Associate Professor in the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney, who has a special interest in researching technology in Aboriginal communities. And before I go any further, I need to declare a conflict of interest. Potentially, here is that Chris is on the advisory group of the Aboriginal Health Television Network, which I helped to found. So anyway, welcome to you both. 
Welcome. Thank you. Leslie, just tell us the population you serve and what this new proposal aims to do. We are located down in Noongar country, which is in the southwest of Western Australia. Around 7,000 Aboriginal people that live in this region and access services through the Aboriginal Medical Service here in Bunbury. Now, you've already got quite a large service there. What's this new proposal? Yes, we've got a uh, very exciting and very innovative opportunity here to partner with the University of Technology in Sydney to look at a smart living precinct that we're wanting to establish to build the capability and the capacity to deliver services that can assist in improving health outcomes for Aboriginal people to closing the gap in this region where we can have greater efficiency also in our service delivery. Now you've been given some land back, your traditional land back from the city of Bunbury. What would this hub look like? And I'll come to Chris in a minute about the technology aspects. We want to harness emergent technologies to look at a hub that brings community together. We've started to consult with our Noongar peoples to build this on the principles of self-determination, empowerment and freedom of choice within healthcare facilities. Creating a vision of whole of life support from before the baby's born up until the end of life but engaging wellbeing and community centres within this and housing other allied health and social service agencies that can come together to wrap around a support on one precinct. So one-stop shop and, and, and maternal child health clinic is part of it. Definitely, that's critical. Maternal child health, childcare and after-school care. So it's a unique opportunity to enable children to be cared for, supported and tracked through to adulthood and make sure that they have the benefits that modern technology can provide for in their adult success as well. So that modern technology is the cue for you, Christopher. What are you talking about here in terms of the technology base? Because that's part of the proposal. Well, there's a lot of current technologies, but also emerging technologies. And some of those include artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, sensors, apps that we're looking at how we can co-design those to collect better information, but also how they're culturally appropriate for Indigenous use. So Aboriginal people are not going to be any more enthusiastic about data being collected on them than the rest of the community. They're going to say to you, what difference is it going to make to my life and my children's lives, this technology? Give us a flavour. If you harness this technology, how would it actually benefit communities and help close the gap, as Leslie's been talking about? Part of the research is about how can technology help close the gap. If you look at the close the gap strategy, it does not include technologies. You've been developing apps yourself already. We've been building This My Mob. Tell me about that. It's an app that's been co-designed with Aboriginal communities around the country. We've got six sites that we work with. So what does it do? It's an app that has two primary functions. One is to connect Indigenous communities with their own mob and with other mobs, but also to connect with government and non-government agencies through a digital portal where web-based information can be accessed in real time. And it will give you the options of choosing the information you want to receive and how you can also connect with those agencies. So, Leslie, what data are you looking for that you don't have now? We're looking for data, I suppose, where there are gaps, where we don't see that continuity of care being delivered because it's been disconnected. So this is, sorry to interrupt, but this is not just about medical care. This would be social care, housing, transport, jobs, that sort of thing, which 
are part of the health of the community. That's right. But it also looks at strategic partnerships, commercial opportunities, ongoing training, workforce, things that have never been done. So Chris, this is trying to put Aboriginal communities ahead of the curve rather than where they usually are well, behind what, the curve. Well, that's right. We want to look at how in the future Indigenous health is going to deliver its services. So Leslie, uh, my understanding is that young Aboriginal people are just like young people anywhere, but particularly young Aboriginal people are not turning up at Aboriginal medical services or general practice. Could this be, this technology approach be a way of re-engaging with young Aboriginal people? Certainly, we know that young people very rarely come in unless they're injured through sport or they've already had some health condition that's impacted on them. This precinct will be an opportunity where we can bring the youth to this location as well, but also have the technology that's going to encourage them to come on site. And then how do we, once we've got them there, how do we use technology as well to harness the programs that we need to deliver? So how far away is all this from happening? We have started to work on our concept plans. We're certainly getting very close to the land. We were looking by the end of the year. We've been aggressively getting out there, meeting with ministers and senators and parliamentarians around the state and nationally. Hopefully that opportunity isn't delayed too long to start moving this. Well, thank you very much to you both. Leslie Nelson is CEO of Southwest Aboriginal Medical Service in Bunbury and Christopher Lawrence is Associate Professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.